Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick, with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we talk about emotional intelligence, What is emotional intelligence and why does it matter so much? How the science demonstrates that emotional intelligence matters far more than your IQ and how you can develop and improve your EQ, how to build the muscles of focus, and much more with Dr. Daniel Goleman. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 800,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, How do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we dove into evolutionary psychology and looked at how biases have been programmed into your mind by millions of years of evolution. We examined why our guest condemns the concept of empathy, 
how the science demonstrates that empathy has no correlation with doing good in the world and how empathy can often create disastrous social outcomes and much more with our guest, Dr. Paul Bloom. It's a very controversial episode. I highly recommend checking it out. He might challenge some of your beliefs and assumptions about how we make decisions. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Daniel Goleman. Daniel is the co-founder of the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. He currently co-directs the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations at Rutgers University. He's the international best-selling author of several books, including Primal Leadership, Focus, and Emotional Intelligence, which has been translated into over 40 languages. Daniel, welcome to the Science of Success. Matt, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you so much for being on here. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you and, and your story, share a little bit about your background. Well, you know, I'm a psychologist. I've got a PhD in, in the field. I became a science journalist and started covering psychology. And in 1990, when I was working at the New York Times, I saw an article in a rather obscure journal. So obscure it doesn't exist. It was called Emotional Intelligence. I thought, that is a dynamite concept because, first of all, it sounds like an oxymoron, emotions and intelligence, but it means we can be intelligent about our emotions. And I use that in my 95 book, Emotional Intelligence, as a framework for talking about what's going on in the brain and why emotional intelligence matters so much in, in your professional life, your personal life. And I've been doing work, uh, as you mentioned, on that ever since. So for listeners who may not kind of be familiar with the concept of emotional intelligence or or maybe they've heard it and, you know, think of it as kind of a buzzword. You know, how would you kind of define the concept of emotional intelligence? Sure. It has become a kind of popular meme, you know, EQ. He's, he, that guy's got no EQ or he's pretty high in EQ. People kind of know what it means. There's actually a technical definition. There's four parts of emotional intelligence in my model. The first is self-awareness, knowing what you're feeling and why you feel it, how it's affecting your performance, knowing your strengths and weaknesses. Knowing how other people see you, that's a big one. Then there's self-management, managing your upsetting emotions so you can focus on what you're doing, your task at hand, having a drive to achieve and setting goals and working toward those goals. What I'm talking about now are what are called competencies. They're based on self-management, but they're what we call crucial competencies, abilities that are learned and learnable that we find differentiate outstanding performers from average. Another is having a positive outlook and finally adaptability, being able to change as demands change. Those are all competencies under self-management. The third part of emotional intelligence is social awareness, being able to read other people, empathy, knowing what they feel without their telling you. People don't tell us in words. They tell us in tone of voice. They tell us in your body language and so on. Can you pick that up? That's empathy. It's really important in any relationship, whether it's your private life or your work life. Another is a different level of competence. It's organizational awareness, reading the emotional currents in an organization, knowing who to go to to get a key decision made, you know, what the network of influence is. The fourth ability and fourth domain of emotional intelligence is managing your relationships. It's being able to influence people. Another competence here is being a good coach and mentor to people who are coming up the ladder behind you, being able to manage conflict, leadership that inspires, and teamwork. So that's what we actually mean by emotional intelligence. And 
you know, talking about the differences between IQ and EQ, how do each of these sort of skill sets translate into how successful people are? You know, is, is one a larger driver of the other? You know, which one well, has the highest? Y- yes, that's a great question, Matt. And the answer is it depends. When you're in school, during your school years, IQ is what matters. You know, academic achievement is, is correlated very, very highly with IQ. But there's something they'll never tell you in school, which is once you get into the work sphere, you know, you, you're on your career, it matters less and less and less the higher you go. The reason is this. If you want to become, you know, an MBA, if you want to be an executive, if you want to be a physician, doesn't matter. There's a certain level of cognitive complexity you've got to be able to digest and understand in order to do your job. That's the IQ side. And here's where the paradox starts. Once you're in the field, everyone else who's made in the field is about as smart as you are. So IQ loses its predictive power and who's going to excel, who's going to stand out. This is where emotional intelligence matters, how you handle your own emotions, how you manage yourself, those abilities like getting disturbing emotions under control, staying focused, working toward your goals. That matters much more now or being able to get along with people, work on a team to lead people. So the EQ abilities differentiate the higher you go in your career. And when you look at top management positions, you know, C-level leaders, there's a methodology called competence modeling. It takes these crucial competencies and others like them and looks at which ones distinguish people in our organization in terms of their actual business performance or organizational performance. And it shows that emotional intelligence competencies, these crucial competencies, are what matter far more than IQ. People who are at a top level You know, you hire people who are programmers, who are accountants, who have those IQ skills. And what you're doing is managing people. And that's an emotional intelligence ability. Out of those four different components, which one do you see or what does kind of the research bear out in terms of what do people most often struggle with? Well, empathy turns out to be a very big challenge for a lot of people, particularly, interestingly, people who are outstanding individual performers. Like, you know, say you're really amazing at writing code. Well, programmers get a lot of mileage by being smart programmers, their IQ abilities. The problem is when they get promoted to be a team leader or an executive of any kind, that's where you need empathy because empathy is what greases the relationship. It's the lubricant. It's what makes rapport. It's what makes you understand how to put things to this guy so he'll understand it or you know, I'm losing attention over here or actually being a caring leader turns out to have a lot of power in terms of loyalty, in terms of people giving their best. That's another aspect of empathy. So if you don't have empathy, it really hurts you as you go higher and higher on the ladder and become a leader of more and more people. And in my experience, it's empathy that is the one crucial competence people struggle with the most. And how do people who struggle with empathy, how can they kind of overcome that or how can they cultivate the ability to be more empathetic? Well, there's actually a lot of research along these lines. It turns out there are three varieties of empathy and it depends which one you need to strengthen. There's cognitive empathy, which means I understand how you think. I understand how you see the world. I can take your perspective. 
technically, I know your mental models. I know the terms or the concepts in which you divide up your world. This lets me communicate with you very effectively. I know how to put things to you so you'll understand it. So that's one kind of empathy. Second kind of empathy is emotional empathy. And this draws on a completely different set of brain circuitry. Emotional empathy is when you have a feeling, I pick it up inside myself. And there are dedicated neuronal circuits for a kind of emotional brain-to-brain radar that do this. And this lets you have rapport. This lets you have chemistry with the person. You understand instantly how they feel. But there's a third kind of empathy that you see in the leaders people love to work for. And that's called empathic concern. Not only do I know how you think and how you feel, I actually care about you. So I'm going to have your back. I'm going to give you feedback that's going to help you and help us, by the way. And in other words, that's the kind of leadership that people want, but it takes that third kind of empathy. So if you want to develop that, it turns out there are mental exercises you can do that strengthen that very brain circuitry. And I think that's going to become more and more common in HR in the future, you know, as coaches and so on try to help people with empathy. You're going to see more and more of that mental training. What are some of those exercises? Could you either sort of describe them or maybe even give an example that somebody listening might be able to perform? Well, one is repeating to yourself the idea that you actually care about the people in your life. It sounds so simple, but it actually has a neural impact. You know, you think of the people that have been kind to you in your life. Well, that's easy. And you hope that they'll be happy, safe, secure, you know, healthy, have well-being, You wish that for yourself. That's easy. Then you wish it for people that you love, you know, people in your family, whatever, your friends. And then for strangers or people at work, you can bring to mind specific people or the general category. And finally, for everybody. So that's a classical method of cultivating this kind of concern and care. And it turns out there's research coming out of the Max Planck Institute in Germany. It's like their MIT. And they find that if people do this consistently, like a few minutes a day, it thickens the brain circuitry for this particular kind of empathy. And people become more caring, become more concerned. It comes spontaneously. You can't really fake this stuff. It has to be come from inside. What about cognitive empathy? Are there things we can do to cultivate or improve our ability to understand how people think? Yes, of course. You know, it's very straightforward. You can have someone who will be open with you, let you know how they think about things, but you want to tell them first, here's how I think you see that, and then check it against how they actually see it. And what this does is tune you in to another person's perspective, because that's what you're doing. And then you can start to pick it up, for example, from the language they use, the terms they use, the attitudes they express. All of those are clues to someone's mental models. And the emotional empathy, Matt, if you're going to ask about that, that can be strengthened by actually talking to a person about how they feel and the things they feel most strongly about. That's the kind of conversation you can only have with your spouse, your partner, you know, your best buddy, whoever it is, but someone who can be very open with you. And it's really about sharing feelings. It may sound corny, but it actually is a methodology that strengthens the relevant brain circuitry. So in mental cognitive empathy, you're strengthening a part of the neocortex. 
in emotional empathy, you're strengthening a part of the limbic system, the emotional system. And empathic concern, you're strengthening a circuitry we actually share with all mammals. It's the parental caretaking circuitry. It's the circuitry that is active when you love your kid. It's so interesting that, you know, this is very much, it sounds on the surface, you hear the phrase emotional intelligence and think that it's kind of fluffy. But in reality, this is very much rooted in science and, and neuroscience and the, and the kind of neurobiology of your brain itself. Oh, absolutely. When I'm talking about self-awareness and self-management, there's specific brain circuitry involved. We know what it is. It's the prefrontal cortex, which is the brain's executive center just behind the forehead and its connections down to the emotional brain, which is between the ears, particularly the amygdala, which is the trigger point for the fight or flight or freeze response. If you're someone who you know, gets angry and overwhelmed and you know, really yells at people and then later wishes you hadn't, it means that you have poor emotional self-control, which is one of those crucial competencies. And the way to strengthen that is to remember to stop and think before you act. Because you need to widen that window that is there always, but usually we ignore it when we're losing it. But if you're getting hijacked by your amygdala, you're going to say something, do something that's going to not be effective. You are going to regret it later. The stronger the circuitry to your prefrontal cortex, the more you can have a gap. Some say that the definition of maturity is widening the gap between impulse and action. And that's what's going on at the brain level under all of these self-awareness and self-regulation competencies. The two that involve slightly other circuitry are this goal orientation, you know, striving toward a goal and keeping it in mind and overcoming obstacles and keep going. That's one important thing. Another is a positive outlook. No matter what happens, you're going to see the silver lining and keep going. You're going to see the bright side. Those are motivational, and they involve circuitry in the left side of the prefrontal cortex, which is where you experience positive emotions. So we know exactly what's going on in the brain underlying the emotional intelligence clusters and competencies. When it comes to relationship management, you're mostly talking about the emotional centers in the brain and the radar that they have for picking up another person's brain. But it becomes more and more complex as you get into things, say, like conflict management, which involves a lot of different moves. I'm very curious, what does the science say about ways to strengthen our prefrontal cortex, especially around the ability to sort of control your amygdala? You know, one of the things I've been involved with for a long time is called social emotional learning, which brings the emotional intelligence competencies. I'm talking about all the crucial competencies, all the domains self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship management, into schools. And one of the things they do in schools actually would help anybody. I've seen this in schools I visited. It's a poster. It's a stoplight. It says, when you're getting upset, remember the stoplight. Red light, stop, calm down, and think before you act. That's really the three steps that you need. Stop. Don't do the first thing that your impulses tell you to calm down and think before you act. Yellow light, think of a range of ways you might respond. And green light, pick the best one and try it out. Well, you know, you don't have to be a fourth grader to use the stoplight. Those steps 
work at any point in life. So if you wanted to strengthen the circuitry for self-control, you have to practice. You know, the brain and the mind are muscles and they're basic repetitions that strengthen circuitry. So here, the circuitry you're strengthening is the don't act on the impulse, pause, think of a better way to act and try it out. So those are four simple steps. If you do that every time, you know, you find yourself getting upset, you're going to be strengthening the prefrontal circuitry. I'd also love to talk about the concept of a positive outlook kind of within the realm of self-management. For someone who, who may not have a positive outlook or, or you know, generally kind of negative or down about things, how would you suggest reframing or sort of building a more positive approach to things? There's a psychologist at Penn, Martin Seligman, who's kind of state-of-the-art in this. He wrote a book called Learned Optimism. And what he did is develop a program for teaching anyone, particularly people who, by the way, are prone to depression, because the thing they lack is this ability to see the bright side of events. They only see the bad side, the dark side. So he started with people who are depressed and helped them realize, first of all, you don't have to believe your thoughts. Well, that's a very powerful thought itself. What it means is you can look at your own thinking and decide, is that a thought that helps me or is it not? Because people who are pessimistic have a litany in their stream of thought, which is, you know, that things are going to be bad, that this, I can't do it. It's always going to be like this. These are the kinds of thoughts that make someone pessimistic and eventually depressed. So Seligman says, challenge those thoughts. You know, when you get the thought, I'm not good enough for this, or they don't like me, or whatever it may be, take time to argue with that thought. This is also a basic move in what's called cognitive therapy. And it's been found through all kinds of research to have very powerful impact. So first of all, don't automatically believe negative thoughts. Second, question and challenge them. And third, when you find that positive frame on it, go with that. Keep reminding yourself of that. Sometimes people actually write cue cards that they take out and remind themselves of when they're starting to have a particularly familiar negative train of thought. Those are very good methods. And the book is Learned Optimism, Martin Seligman. Thanks for that recommendation. And we'll make sure to include that in the show notes for listeners who want to check that out. Changing gears, I'd love to dig into the concept of the ventilation fallacy. Could you talk a little bit about that? The ventilation fallacy is this idea that it's really good for you to get your anger out when you're mad at people. And the research shows, paradoxically, is if you constantly ventilate, you get better and better at ventilate, and you strengthen the circuitry for ventilating, and you become an impulsive, angry, and rage person. That does not help you. You really want to manage your anger. You can be selective. You can be very you know, strong and assertive when you need to be, but it doesn't actually help to be angry. If you're angry, that's more than is needed. And what it does is trigger anger in other people. So you don't get people to do what you want. You get people who are oppositional and defiant against you because you've gotten them angry. So really what you want to do is be assertive. Assertive means, hey, you know, we need you to do this because when you do that, it messes up in this way. So here's how you can do that. And here's how I'll help you. That's a much more effective way of giving feedback than just yelling at somebody and saying, oh my God, you're an idiot or whatever it is. You probably would say something harsher if you're really angry, but 
you get the idea. So that's specifically within the context of anger. I'm curious, how does that same approach fall within the context of depression or sadness? Is ventilation a better strategy in that case, or or what is the most effective strategy to do something? No, ventilation doesn't help with any negative emotion because it essentially is rehearsing that emotion. The more you rehearse a behavioral sequence or an emotional sequence, the stronger the underlying brain circuitry becomes. So it becomes more common, more frequent in how you respond to situations. What you want to do is intentionally oppose it and modify it in a positive direction, whether it's depression or anger, anxiety, whatever it is. And what are some of the ways that, let's say, somebody suffering from anxiety may be able to intentionally oppose those kind of thought patterns? Well, one of the first steps, which actually Selden doesn't have, but I talk about in Focus, for example, in my book, is mindfulness, which mindfulness is stepping back and letting you see your thought as a thought. So you might have an anxiety-provoking thought. You know, this thing's going to come up and I won't be any good. or I'm going to give a talk and I'm no good at talks. That is an anxiety-provoking thought itself. Or you may have a depression-provoking thought, like, I'm just no good. I'll never be any good. Or you may have an anger-provoking thought, like, this guy is an idiot and I just, you know, all I can do is yell at him. Whatever it may be, you want to step back from those thoughts so you can assess them. You know, is this helpful? Do I really want to go down this route? So I think that is across the board a first step. And I think that the way you'd handle any of those varieties of negativity is essentially the same as I outlined with the the Seligman approach. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. 
LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. You've also talked about how distraction or sort of distracting ourselves and shifting our focus can be a useful strategy. Could you talk a little bit about that? One of the ways to manage anxiety is to focus on something else. In other words, get your mind off that anxious train of thought. And it could be, you know, something funny, or it could be just meditating on your breath, focusing on your breath whatever will help you. It's different from person to person. But if you find that thing, it's a very effective way to calm anxiety. On the other hand, you don't want to be in a state where you're supposed to be focusing on one thing and your mind is wandering off. That's a different situation. So it's not that distraction is always a plus, but in certain situations, it can be an antidote. I think that's a good segue to dig in a little bit to the concept of focus, which is also the title of, of one of your previous books. Tell me, you know, how do you define the concept of focus and why is it so critical? By focus, I mean attention. And attention is the doorway through which everything else happens. Memory, high performance, performance of any kind. In sports, for example, people who test poorly on concentration, which is a key barometer of attention, do very poorly in the next season. People who at work can't pay attention do poorly in whatever it is they're supposed to do. So focus is the key. It's the hidden ingredient in success. And I've got some audios that help people that are instructions in different kinds of focus, different ways to improve your focus. And if that's been a problem for anyone, I'd recommend doing that, whether it's mine or someone else's. But you have to understand attention, as I said, the mind is a muscle. And attention and bringing your mind back to what you're supposed to be focusing on is the basic repetition. So it's the equivalent of going to a gym and doing a lot of reps with a weight. Every time you try to focus on one thing and your mind wanders off and you bring it back, you're actually strengthening the underlying brain circuitry for concentration and focus. And the more focused people are in any domain of performance, the better they'll be. You've talked about the difference between rumination and reflection and how that relates to the concept of focus. I'd love to hear you explain that dichotomy. Rumination is when you have trains of thought that just make you more worried. You think about this big challenge coming up at work, and all you can think about is how you're going to screw it up. That's an anxiety-provoking train of thought. However, reflection 
means you're thinking about this challenge coming up and you're coming up with some solutions, some things you can do, some steps you can take. That's a very positive kind of mental work. So rumination gets you nowhere. It just increases your anxiety, maybe your depression. But reflection helps you find solutions. So it's the focus on finding solutions itself that really turns you know, reflection into a, a much more productive thought pattern. Yes, I would say that it's a positive kind of focus and rumination is a negative kind of focus. What about the importance of rest as part of an ability to cultivate attention and focus? Well, if you're finding that your attention is lagging and your mind is wandering, it may mean that you're not getting enough sleep or enough rest. There are people and research that really supports the idea, for example, of a a power nap restores the brain and it reboots you for the rest of the day. And also people swear by, you know, seven or eight hours of sleep a night if you can manage it in your schedule. But if you can't get that much sleep and you find you're losing it during the, the day, then a nap is actually a very quick, magical way to restore your mind. And I believe you touched on in the book the concept of attention restoration theory. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, attention restoration theory basically says that the brain, which runs on glucose, a kind of sugar, can run out of it if we're overexerting the brain. And there's a lot of work situations that, that will do this. And the sign of that is that you just can't keep your focus. Your mind wanders. You, can't, you just can't process things as well. And that's when restoration theory says you should take a walk. If you can walk in a park, walk in nature, even better. But, you know, drop what you're doing and just let yourself have some relaxed time, get out of the situation, and then come back to it and you'll be refreshed. It gives your mind time to restore. And is that sort of interrelated to the concept of willpower and the notion of ego depletion? Well, ego depletion and willpower kind of operate on the same principle that the circuitry underlying the ability to keep going, keep going, you know, at force of will, also can run out of steam, run out of gas. And there again, it's good to take a break, restore yourself and come back. I'd love to kind of take the concept of emotional intelligence, the ideas of focus that we've been talking about and segue into discussing one of your recent books, which is called Primal Leadership. I'd love to sort of understand what does that term mean and, and why did you decide to call it Primal Leadership? Well, we had a big argument about that, as you can imagine, because primal is a kind of provocative word, but we're trying to get at is the fact that there is an emotional level to leadership. This is the primal level, that if you leave it out, you're not going to be effective as a leader. This is why, as I said, emotional intelligence matters more and more. The more leadership positions you take on and the higher you go in an organization, the more people you're leading you need to feel the pulse of the people. You need to know how to talk to them. You need to know how to inspire them, how to motivate, how to keep them on course, how to give them positive feedback that will be effective, how to get them to want to give their best. And that's an emotional challenge. It's not a cognitive challenge. I think that's a great point, which is that it's not a cognitive challenge. It's an emotional challenge. Such a great way to phrase that. And it really crystallizes the fact that, as we discussed earlier in the conversation, you know, brain power can only solve so many of these problems. What you really need to cultivate is the ability to 
understand people, empathize with them, and learn how to influence them if you want to be successful as a leader and within really any organization. Exactly. Very well put, Matt. And I would add that the ability to do that, you know, that we learn in life. You don't learn it in school. You learn it on teams. You learn it, you know, playing with kids. You learn it in relationships. You learn it in the workplace. It's an alternate curriculum. It's not the academic curriculum. You'll never learn it in an MBA program, but it's what's going to make or break a career as you get into a leadership position or just a member of a team. That's why I feel the crucial competencies are so important because you can have strengths in some and limits in others. And it's important to know where your limits are so you can build on those. You may be you know, really good at managing yourself. You may not be so good at empathy or influence or inspiring people. But as you get into a position where you're leading a team or whatever it may be, those become more and more important. And you need emotional intelligence to improve those. You touched on the concept of the crucial competencies. What are those and how would you define them? Well, after I wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, I wrote a book called Working with Emotional Intelligence. And I realized that, uh, you know, my own graduate school work had been in what's called competence modeling. This was developed by one of the big developers was David McClellan, my main professor at Harvard. And a competence is a learned and learnable ability that makes you outstanding in your work. So the competency, some of them I mentioned, the drive to achieve or having a positive outlook or adaptability, being good at influencing people or coach and mentor, conflict management, inspiring people, teamwork. These are learned abilities. There was a study done at one of the big pharma companies, Johnson & Johnson, where they had someone who's just outstanding star team leader. And they asked her, well, when did you become good at this? And, And she said, Well, I realized that this was important. I had some talent when I was in middle school. She had moved to a new town. She didn't know other kids. She thought she could meet friends by joining a field hockey club. She wasn't so good at field hockey, but she was really good at teaching new kids how to play the game. They made her an assistant coach, and she had one position after another like that up to being head of teams at a huge company. And that was an ability she learned, and she learned it in life. And it's true of each one of these competencies. And we're all, no one is good at all of them. But you need to be good at six or more to be an outstanding leader or to be outstanding in any field. I think it's such a critical point as well that these are not innate skills that you're either born with or not. These are all learned abilities that the research and the data demonstrates you can learn and there are specific methodologies and strategies that you can implement in order to learn these and train yourself to become effective at this whole slew of very important competencies. Well, Matt, and I think that's the key point. I find that so encouraging that it's not that, you know, you're either born with it or you're not. It's really, did you learn it yet? If not, you still can. You can learn and strengthen them at any point in life. And you've got a new project that you've been working on that involves these crucial competencies, correct? Yes, it's the crucial competency project with more than sound. And what we're doing is focusing on the competencies one by one 
and explaining them in more depth. We're talking to, for example, coaches who have helped executives cultivate one or another, actually each of the 12. We're going to run through them. We're also coming out with a program for how you can strengthen each one. Because, for example, in the workplace, people sometimes are told, well, you know, you need to work on empathy or you need to work on emotional self-management or positive outlook, whatever it is. They don't tell you necessarily how to do that. So we're trying to give folks the specifics, the mechanics. How can you improve this in yourself on your own? And we'll make sure to include in the show notes a link to that resource for listeners who want to check that out and are curious about how to cultivate and learn about those different competencies. I think that's really great. And by the way, it's not just for yourself. You may have workmates. You may have friends. You may be a, a leader who knows someone needs that. So, you know, it's something you also can recommend to other people. That's a great point. I'm curious, one of the other topics that you touched on is how to give people feedback or constructive criticism. I know that can often be a very touchy subject, and I'm curious, how do you recommend dealing with that issue? Well, there are two basic approaches to feedback. One is critical, which tends to dismiss the person as being like this forever, which is very demoralizing. In fact, we have fMRI studies that show people who get that kind of research, it activates their circuitry for negative feeling, for upset. In other words, you put someone in a bad mood, you don't help them. (laughs) So you don't want to do that. You really want to have a kind of friendly approach, a positive approach. I'm going to help you get better at this. And the first thing you need to do is say, you know, you're so good at such and such. And I notice that when you did this and you want to be very specific, it didn't work out. So let's think about how you can get better at that. In other words, you're not attacking the person. The critical negative approach makes the person feel that they're just no good at this and it triggers their negative circuitry. What you want to do is trigger a very positive outlook so the person feels energized and that they can learn how to do this better. And maybe you're in a position to help them learn and suggest some ways. But in other words, you're not ruling them out. You're saying, hey, you know, you're a valuable person on this team and we want you to get better at this. Here's some ways you can do it. I think that approach is much more motivating. And in fact, the brain research shows it does activate positive circuitry. So for listeners who want to take some of these ideas, maybe take a very simple first step in developing or cultivating their emotional intelligence, what's one simple piece of homework you would give them as kind of a first step? Well, I would say that the first step is to manage your own negative emotions. And that may be negative thinking. It may be impulsive anger. Whatever it is, widen that gap between impulse and action. And if it's at the mental level, step back from your thoughts and ask yourself, is this useful? I think that's fundamental. Those are acts of self-awareness. Self-awareness turns out to be the base foundational competency in all the crucial competencies. People who are high in self-awareness tend to be high in, you know, 10 or so emotional intelligence competencies. People who are low in it tend to have very few competencies. So this is the basic homework. I don't think you can say enough about how important 
self-awareness is. And it's so funny to see, you know, you can see people who've struggled for years. And then as soon as they start to cultivate self-awareness and kind of get out of their own way in many ways, you can see rapid transformations in the way that people behave in, in their lives. It's so Exactly. Matt, think about it the opposite way. People who have low self-awareness don't realize they need to do any work. Exactly. And they don't realize they're making mistakes. It's a self-fulfilling <laughs> cycle in many ways. It could be very nice. Exactly. You got it. Well, where can people find you and your books and the Crucial Competency Project online for listeners who want to access uh, that? Yeah, the best place to go is more than sound. One word, more than sound.net. It's all there. Perfect. And we will make sure to include that in the show notes for everybody to be able to check out. Well, Daniel, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your wisdom about emotional intelligence. It's been great to- Matt, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you very much. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we just talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get them at scienceofsuccess.co. Just hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 